And why did you want to run an ad on our podcast? You know, we see it as um, it's a different avenue. We didn't want to do the same thing. We didn't want to run an ad with a really annoying limerick or something. Yeah, we wanted to do something that firstly supported something in WA and also something that created content. As I said, I've listened to podcasts, you know, hundreds of podcasts in cars, on journeys, planes, around the field, rock chipping, mapping, whatever it is. And podcasts, great way to make that day just go a little bit quicker. We want to be a part of that. Hopefully they remember us because of whatever episode you've produced. In general, you know, we provide people, geos, field staff. We do some offsiders as well. We're providing vehicles and we sort of upgrade, upgrade those as well for exploration. So, that, you know, we fit them with long range tanks so the guys aren't having to worry about you know, how much fuel they've got. We want to be there and provide everything. We just want to make their lives easy. You want to be the bunnings of exploration. Yeah, anytime, anywhere, you know. Hi, I'm Seamus Murphy. I'm General Manager of Anytime Exploration Services, and you're listening to Exploration Radio. Really, Briscoe? Really? A dictionary definition? Is that the best we can do? How is that something so fundamental to mineral exploration, like the nature of what constitutes a discovery, can have such a poorly accepted industry-wide definition? Maybe it is like the old adage, if you do not know which port you are sailing to, then no wind is favorable. If everyone can define discovery, then does that mean that no one can define discovery? The bit you just heard is from a talk that Scott gave asking the question, what does a discovery look like? I think it is safe to say he struggled coming up with a definition in his talk. Maybe that question is better debated in a long format podcast episode. So on this episode, I'm joined by Scott Briscoe, and we try to understand what constitutes a discovery in mineral exploration. I'm your host, Ahmad, and welcome to Exploration Radio. Let's explore. So, Scott, welcome to Exploration Radio. Yeah, thanks for for having me on the show. I'm a big fan, so I kind of feel uh, I'm not sure if I'll stack up to the other guests you've had. <laughs> no, no, I think, uh, and I think that there's a little bit of a shout out moment here, and the fact that yeah, like when we started, I think you were probably one of the first people to contact me, going like, yeah, this is great, yeah, this is the type of stuff. Uh, uh, I guess you want to listen to when you're driving around, wherever you're driving around. Um, so yeah, so thanks a lot for being such a fan for such a long time. 
Uh, to, yeah, to be no. honest, we should have we should have probably gotten you on the show a lot earlier, but I don't know why it's taken us this long to uh, to get a hold of you. I've had a, a good number of guests to to go through. Uh, yeah, I, yeah, that's I, I definitely feel it's been uh, nice. I think like the thing that's been really fun for me is, um, especially a lot of the junior geos that I've worked with, they don't have a lot of the context, and so I've encouraged them to listen to the show as well because you hear how things used to be done, and then that gives like an idea of why they're done the way they are now, and so um, it's. I don't know. It's kind of, it's been a great mix of um, like, here's how things were done. Here's how things are being done now. And then what's the future hold? And I think that's kind of rare to capture in exploration. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think like, you know, in a lot of ways, I guess our point really was to kind of target those, those people, right? Like, you know, that don't have the ability to go listen to some of the people in our, in our industry, you know, for whatever reason, you know, they may be not senior enough, you know, they don't get those opportunities or all those things. Um, and I think this, you know, like our attempt anyways was to kind of democratize that understanding to those people as much as possible because uh, yeah that will only end up you know hopefully making them better and then overall the industry as well yeah and it's it's kind of um uh it's an interesting thing with i think the geoscience has been really slow to to embrace some of the the new technologies and ways to share things and i was i i, I just give another shout out i've been really happy with uh, nick if you've ever read his stuff on linkedin He's been sharing a bunch of videos and putting all this stuff out there that it's like basic field craft that people haven't learned because they haven't worked with someone like that. And it's it's really cool to to take advantage of the the the, the you know things like YouTube and all that, right? It's I always joke around like you don't have to know how to rebuild a car, you just have to to have a YouTube account and then you'll be able to figure it out, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, actually, I mean, what's the, what's the rule now that if uh, there's a if there isn't a video on YouTube showing you how to do it, yeah, it's not possible. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah but basically, like yeah, everything that is possible uh, it has been done by uh, people on YouTube. That that that's effectively yeah, yeah. the model. Yeah, it's, it's like the, the self-help books of the modern day, right? You, know, you used to have the plumbing and, and how to do your own home electronics, and now it's YouTube. So, so Scott, the reason why we got you on is uh, you just recently did a talk on yeah, like what does uh, discovery look like? And, and I guess that's really the topic we kind of wanted to dig in today because uh, as hopefully our listeners will kind of realize by, by the end of this conversation is that it's not an easy question to answer. So but before we get into that, do you want to give like a quick 30-second minute uh, introduction into you, like who you are and how you got yeah. to where you are right now? No, that sounds good. Um, so years back, uh, I had no idea. I actually never wanted to go to college, so I hadn't planned to go to college, so I didn't have very good grades. And so... Um, when I decided that I didn't want to work in an auto parts store for the rest of my life, I uh, went and uh, decided to go to junior college. And uh, I had a professor there, a geology professor there, because I just took all these classes I stood in. And former explorationist, um, so his name is George Wielden, and one of the best professors I ever had, including through like going to a, a, one of the, the better universities in the United States. And, um, and he just hooked me on, on exploration, right? So had all these great stories of like traveling all over the world and seeing these different outcrops and trying to just figure things out. So then we started doing all these field trips. So you imagine most of these people, they're, they're kids that have no interest in being a geologist. And I was like, oh, you know, this is 2001. So I asked him, I was like, oh, how do I become an exploration geologist? And you know, he's like, well, unless you can change the price of gold, you're not. <laughs> so uh, he said, oh, you know, like, he's like, I just sold my business, um, like this geology company to um, uh, a former student of mine and he's an exploration geologist, but you know, times are tough with, and so I started working for this geologist who taught me how to do mapping and taught me how to like use a Brunton and compass and sorry, Brunton and compass. And then like started doing like field traverses and making my own topographic maps and all before I ever went to school for, for geology. So by the time I went to school, I, I was just hooked in it because he had all these great stories and, you know, really good mentor. So his name was Bill Mitchell. And then, uh, I uh, went to school and I was, um, I, I always tried to work and scare up contract jobs and summer internships and kind of did a variety of things. And I remember like cold calling like 60 juniors at the time and no one was hiring because, you know, garbage. And I finally got on with one as a contract year while I was still in school and then graduated and um, uh, kind of went, worked for a number of different juniors and um, mostly in Nevada. And then, uh, um, got a chance to go do, uh, you know, asking people like, how do I be a better exploration geologist? So I go, oh, you need to go do production. So I got a job as a production geo up in Alaska and, um, and then ran that team after a while and then wanted to get back into exploration and um, found a job in Australia at St. Ives and um, did that. And then gold crashed in 2012. 
And so I uh, moved back home and found a job. It was actually kind of funny, 30 minutes from where I grew up at. So that was kind of uh, odd. Uh, you know, like I was actually at dinner one night with the president of our company and uh, ran into like a high school friend's little sister. <laughs> you know? So um, anyways, then um, came back over to Nevada, uh, kind of again working for different juniors, doing um, kind of production and exploration and uh, then got on with Newmont in 2017 and um, worked for the various Nevada operations for about almost three years. And then uh, the Nevada Gold Mines JV happened, and I joined that as the, the chief geologist for the MRM group. And, um, you know, I really enjoyed that because there's, uh, there's 148 geologists that I worked with. And, um, and so I got to go underground at all the mines. I got to go in all the open pits and the whole Carlin trend and uh, worked with some phenomenal geologists and just really there was so much to, to be learned there from all these different people and, um, and just seeing the rock and getting context. And, and then looking at, again, kind of what leads to this conversation is just like how odd discoveries look at first and how easy they are to define in hindsight. But at the time, like things were not clear. And uh, then about, um, yeah, May 2020, I came back to Newmont and uh, worked as a geomodeler, helped uh, modeling, and then um, uh, got this job as the regional chief geologist for North America uh, about almost two years ago. And um, so now I travel around to the Canadian operations, and then we have one mine in these as well. And um, so probably about 120 geos that I work with now. And, um, uh, and it's been really fun just meeting different people and working on um, kind of mentorship as, as one part of it. So like trying to upskill various people and in, in all the things from geophysical interpretation through geochemistry, lithogeochem, and, um, and ultimately like exploration targeting and uh, trying to improve our discoveries. Uh, so it's been a bit of a journey, you know, like it's, uh, it's a bit of everything, I think. <laughs> so working from micro cap companies to, to big ones. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think, um, yeah, like, I, I guess I kind of met you through this podcast. And, yeah, like, one of the things in the conversations I've had with you is that, yeah, like, you bring a bucket load of experience from all these different kind of kind of entities. And, yeah, this is just, like, I, I guess a personal opinion. Yeah, like, I think one of the reasons why, uh, yeah, like, you are, like, I think perfectly suited for this mentorship role is because you've seen all all of those different kind of aspects of, of operations and things like that. And um, and I think it's it, it is always is good and, and all credit to an organization like Newmont for having someone like yourself because yeah, I think your ability to kind of step in all of these different shoes is is what I think you know like a lot of people are wanting for mentorship like you know they can kind of see a path yeah you know, admittedly there's been a few gold crashes that have that have kind of thrown a few tangents career tangents your way but yeah. uh you know like I think the the, the like all that kind of a variety of experiences is, is like, I think, perfectly suited for the role you're kind of doing right now. Yeah, like, so big shout out to my boss. So Jamie Pendergast is my boss. And uh, and I think he recognized that and saw that, like, it would be a big value add. I always joke around that most of my lessons are what not to do so that I learned personally. And then the what to do's I learned secondhand. Yeah, which, which is important <laughs> as well, right? Like, let's be honest, that's probably the most important lessons you yeah. learn. And so. I think that's that's actually really key is... um. You know, I've made I've made a number of mistakes in my own career, and uh, and it's like, how do you learn from it? How do you make it so that you don't make the the big mistakes again? And uh, and how do you learn from the good ones, right? And so I I kind of deliberately set about like earlier on in my career, like choosing different jobs to learn specific skills. You know, I always tell people like, you know, read a job description of what you want to do, and then uh, find ways to learn the things that are required in that job description. And and that's not always easy. So um, I, you know, my wife and I, we counted it up at one. We moved like eleven times or something like that. My, it's somewhere around there. And uh, and I think it's more than that now. But um, so a lot of moving, a lot of instability. You know, it's hard to make friends when you move around that much. So it's um, so there's like a personal cost to things. And but ultimately, it's like the the thing that's always odd to me is I'll be in meetings with people that have more experience than me that I really look up to and respect. And it's odd to, to me to be able to add to those conversations. And, and I think it's just that though, and just seeing, I mean, I've been really fortunate. I've been involved in, I think, Discovery 4, like there was like a fourth one that was really small, but, um, and, and like seeing the process and seeing the, the excitement and then the, the drive is, is amazing, you know, but, um, but yeah, again, they're nonlinear because even one of those discoveries, I worked for that same company two different times because they ran out of money and then they, they ran out of money again. So in hindsight, yeah, it's great discovery. You know, the thing is like two million ounce gold and 11 like that. 
but at the time we didn't have money to pay the power bills right <laughs> so you know when you're and, and you kind of mentioned this and i think one of the important things is around the career side is that there is this non-linearity to your career um and also the fact that yeah like you mentioned it before about mistakes and i think one of the things that uh you know like i guess i was quite lucky uh, in having mentors that showed you that you know like mistakes weren't catastrophic which which is something that you kind of hold when you're like in the early part of your career you go you know if I make a mistake you know basically this is this is it yeah. so I, I think having mentors that kind of show you that you know there are ways to navigate out of out of mistakes you know, like wrong jobs or wrong organizations and, and things like that and how you yeah. kind of you know like you can still make something good out of what what may appear to be a bad situation and maybe yeah, you know, maybe that will help you 10 years down the road rather than uh, immediately help you now. Yeah, like I, I've always thought it interesting when people ask, the, would you do it the same way, you know, again, looking back and you go, well, it made me who I am. So I guess that's a key thing. If I avoided all the, the pain of of the mistakes and of the even like, you know, like I always joke around about like uh, but, um, my my firstborn. Two weeks before he was born, um, my company is like ran out of money and was like, oh, we're going to have to lay you off. And uh, and so I look at stuff like that, you know, that ultimately spurred me to then um, find a contract job in uh, California, actually, for my first boss, Bill Mitchell. So it was a one inch is five feet. So that's like one, one to 60 scale mapping at this uh, mine in California that I ended up working at years later. I don't think anybody gets the opportunity to map at that level of, of detail. And it taught me so much about what to collect and how to collect things. And so I go, well, yeah, if I hadn't been laid off, I wouldn't have found that role. And it wouldn't have taught me some of the the, the things that I learned on like key controls for, for ore dep- deposits. So, yeah, so it's it's weird and it's strange and it's been painful at times and wonderful at other times. But it's it's been it's been what it is, you know. <laughs> so, so you mentioned that you know you've been involved in these discoveries. So, so let so starting off, I want to kind of ask the question: Why did you want to do this talk that you did? So, <laughs> it's a hard question. I actually had uh, Lauren Z uh, reach out. Um, I was just chatting with her at SEG, and she's like, "Oh, do you think you could do a talk in a couple of weeks?" And I was like, "Oh, what could I hammer together in a few weeks?" And because I'd been thinking about this topic for a long time, it made it easier to, I think. Uh, form the basis of what I wanted to talk about. And then um, like the long story short is, it's the thing that people don't understand about discovery, right? Is is in hindsight, they're super obvious. And, but we talk about all these ones that, you know, there were 60 holes in before they knew it was, was an ore deposit or they were 90 holes in or, you know, or they discovered it with a, a water well hole, right? <laughs> and it's, so it's like, what does that look like? And And for all the junior geos that I'm trying to work with, you know, we talk about this, like, what is it? Just, you know, like, how do you, how do you know when you've made one? How do you know if you walk away too soon? And the really uncomfortable thing is you don't actually, right? And um, it's, there's, you know, like, and I, I heard the, the analogy years ago, I'm not sure who said, but um, so like expiration and discovery is like fishing. So, you know, there's like three parts to it where, you know, you have to have the, the technique of how to fish, right? So like how to cast where I want to cast. Um, and then you have to know where fish are going to be. So you have to learn the habits of fish and where they're likely to be in the river and all oh, there's a current, all these different things. Right. But ultimately the fish has to be there. So there's like a big component of luck. And so you can be the best fisherman in the world, fishing with the best techniques, with the best knowledge and, and, and be skunked. Or you can be like a brand new person that, that doesn't even know how to cast. And as long as it hits the water and there's a fish there, then you catch fish. And I, I look at like, Discoveries like that, right? There's there's a huge component of a luck, and we talk about this as scientists, and like we don't believe them. And it's, I mean, like I, I do, Nick. I didn't used to, um, but you know, like I, I always joke around, like you know those uh, the scratchers, you know, like that you can play, like for uh, like they're kind of a big thing. You can go to any gas station and you can buy these little scratchers, and you can scratch them and, and win money. And so I, I joke around that like I. Over the course of my life, I probably made three times as much money on, on those as I've spent. And it, like, you can't define like, why is someone lucky? Because that is pure random chance. That has nothing to do with skill or anything else like that. It's pure, just random chance. And like, I was standing at this, this, uh, this line to go cash in a scratcher and the line was really long and it was taking forever. And I was like, well, I'll just go use the machine and I'll buy another one using this one. And so I bought another scratcher and it won. And then I bought another scratcher with it and it won. And I just kind of went through like four or five times. And then I was like, oh, I'll just go cash it out. And the, the guy in line behind me is like, did you just win like four times in a row? I was like, well, yeah. And he's like, 
I play this all the time. And I don't, it's like, I don't, I don't know how to define that. Right. And I, I wish I had that kind of luck in discovery. Right. But I think some people, and I think what it goes like to outside of scratchers, cause that's right. in expiration is people use their intuition. Right. And, and it's, I think, um, Roy Woodall had a quote on that, where it's essentially the one who can make intuitive leaps looking at the same data is, is what leads to discoveries, right? So I go back to like, yeah, you have to have gold there on your project. Like if there's not an ore deposit there, use the best techniques in the world and you won't find anything, right? Where, you know, like I know Newmont has this um, personality thing that they profile, they build whenever like new- Yeah, like psychometric testing or whatever it's called, yep. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, and I, I forgot all the different ones, but their colors is what we, we use. So it's like yellow, red, green, and blue. And, uh, you know, like essentially yellows are people that are like boisterous and kind of like my, myself is you know, yellow. And then red are like the people authority, you know, and they, they know how to like, you know, drive teams forward. And then like the blues are the data centric people that they really need all of the data before them to, to make sense of things. And then the greens are the people centric, you know, like where it's like they care about, um, you know, like they have lots of compassion and, um, and it's like, how do you work as a team? And so everybody has a mix of these things. And I think it's really easy to, to lump people into boxes that are maybe not fair on, on that. But you look at, you need a team of a mix of, to have that success, right? Because like, I'm not super detail oriented. So I really struggle on the, the blue side of the world. So I need people with that blue side to be really good at like the QAQC and the checking of data and the, you know, looking through every little detail of a program. But um, yeah, and so so we go through all this stuff and and it's, you know, it's really disheartening for, I think, the blues to be like, what, there's intuition involved in, in, in expiration? And it's like, yeah, but there's more than that, right? Because it kind of goes back to one of your guests, or maybe it was you that said, um, you know, discovery, if it was like a movie, um, what frame is the discovery made in? Because that's how we portray it, right? Is oh, there's a moment when we discovered an order to And it's like, well, no, it was just the hard work of all these different people with all these different ways of looking at the world. And I think it was uh, Sir Harold Raggett that said, uh, and I probably shouldn't, but... Um, said uh, um, the discoverer is the one seeing what everyone else has seen that thinks something that no one else has. And I, yeah, and I think that's, these are the things that like, they're so difficult to define. And I, so I just was like, well, maybe the easiest way to walk through this is to show people how different, right? So, you know, when we look at, you know, uh, a, a successful mind that's now a mind, ultimately the, uh, you know, um, I think it was Mickey Fulp that said, um, uh, you know, there's, there's of a thousand prospects, a hundred will get drilled of a hundred get drilled, 10 will become mines, five will operate at a loss, four will break even, and one will turn a profit. And that's a really uncomfortable thing to hear when you're in this, right. And you're, you're, you're looking to turn over targets and you're looking to find ultimately mine. So I kind of started my, my talk with a mine that has turned a profit and done really well itself, because then it's like, not a, a maybe deposit. It's like, oh yeah, if gold goes up a little bit, we'll make money. But you know, right now it's really hard. <laughs> Credit to you for your talk because you picked an example where, in hindsight, is obvious, right? Everyone will go, "This is a world class uh, over." You know, it's turned from an economic point of view, it's world class. Yeah, you know, from a geological point of view, it's world class. Uh, no denying that at all. And I think the the way you kind of step through it shows that that ambiguity or and maybe that fuzzy logic of, of how we identify discovery, you know, with the, the benefit of foresight rather than hindsight. And yeah, like, and then your comment, you know, like we brought this up, I think a couple of times around the concept of discovery is like a movie. And, and the reason why I guess I kind of challenge people on this view of like discovery is because I like, you know, like my, I guess my reason for saying it is because I think all of the frames in a movie have a relationship with each other. And I think it's the same in, in discovery. Um, Right, that at the end of the process of discovery, we can look back and say it's a really great movie. But yeah, like if I showed you individual scenes out of that movie, could you say that that's an individually great frame or scene? And and you know, does that make it a great great movie? Well, no, yeah. it's because the relationship between them is what makes it a great a great movie. And it's kind of like when people talk about a movie they've seen, and if they talk to someone else that's seen the movie that has the context, right? And it's kind of like the memes, you know, you can throw a meme up there and uh, and everybody that's seen that gets the meme and they laugh. And the people that haven't seen, what's this? And you're like, that's the iconic scene from Pulp Fiction, for example. And it's like, and and everybody has no idea what the context. And so, yeah, I think that's that's the thing. Like I look at that, that, that deposit that I talked about 
a number of companies have drilled that, right? And and they'd had different ideas for it. They drilled like north of it. They, people had looked at it. And then someone came up with the idea to do an Air Corps program over what became the Discovery. And and they had like, I think a gram or something like that. Um, and it's, it's uh, do you discard that? Because the guy who made the Discovery looked at that one gram intercept and went, well, if this and this and this is going on, maybe uh, we misunderstood it in years. And then you look at like um, uh, WMC was great for always writing up on projects. They tested and drilled. So anytime you did a work program, you had to document and then uh, St. Ives, I worked there with Goldfields, and they um, they were great at carrying on all those those WMC learnings. So you want to talk about like effective change? The the company changed, I think, uh, eight years before I got there, and they were still doing the things that that made you know like St. Ives a success. And uh, and so you're able to go back to these reports and be like, oh no, they drilled this because they thought this. And um, so the guy who who discovered it, and I and I do credit with him discovering it. Because he's the guy that did the drill program. But the person that planned the Air Corps program had an idea that was very similar, laid out what he thought was going on. So do we discard that person's ideas? Do we discard the the work that was done nearby there where it just, you know, like, like it's that's all the context that made the movie great, right? And so it's really easy. And and don't get me wrong, it's not easy. I think the, the guy who discovered this is Nick Van Claveren. And he, he like never gets the, the credit he should because he's just a super humble, quiet guy that is... Like he's brilliant, right? And um, and he he looked at it and went real high. And so instead of building the nice, um, you know, like collapsed uh, uh, saprolite profile with the nice uh, gold anomaly, what if it was actually all weathered off? And that's what's going on, which I think ended up being the case, right? And so so he was off to the races, you know. And um, but then there's even stuff like, oh, okay, well these rocks are shales and these rocks are mudstones. And I didn't talk about this in the talk, kind of short. But there's a lot of discussion on like, well, what's going to be a good host rock? What's going to be um, where where we find our, our ore? And you go back to like, well, it all depends on geometries and all these other things, right? Like you can take a, a shale and if you have that shale parallel to a shear zone, you're going to have like bedding parallel slip, right? Or well, maybe slip, but um, hold on a second. Um, but you, you take that same shale and if the fault is maybe 20 degrees off, it might form an ore deposit, right? And so I guess like from all my work, the, the, the thing that I've seen is everywhere I've worked has had dogmatic ideas of what an ore deposit forms and what the ideal host rock. Is. So at St. Ives, it's, it's a granophoric, I think it's zone four granophoric dolerite. And I could be wrong in the memory, but anyways, a granophoric dolerite. This is mudstones and shales and sediments, right? And, um, but I, what I found is it just has to be better than its neighbor, right? So whether that's in the Carlin trend where you have, you know, um, the ideal perspective uh, host rock in, in uh, Carlin is so, so you get complex, but you get these like silty limestone, you get like porosity and permeability and you can enable the ore fluid. Well, in one mine, it's it's some of the worst rock possible, but it's ne- next to an even worse rock than that. So when you bring ore <laughs> fluid high. through, this terrible host rock is, is better than its neighbor. And so it hosts an ore deposit. And this is a point that I think is worthwhile making is that, you know, there's an evolution of kind of understanding here as well that that, that goes... Um, in part with the discovery process as well, that the person at the start, you know, like might have um, one conception of what they're kind of looking for. And, and during that process, you know, that, that concept can change to, to something completely different by the end. And, and then like, you know, like, and then I guess like the question you want to ask, like, you know, I think like philosophically you kind of want to ask yourself is, well, is the, the end product more important than the start or is the start more important than the end product? Yeah. Like, and how, how, like, how do you get from one to the other? And we see, when yeah. we, and we hear about this all the time that, yeah, like things were explored using a certain model. And then by the end, you know, that model didn't look anything like the model that they started off with. And, and then that's, and, and so the, so maybe it was a change in the model that led to the discovery, not necessarily the starting model or the end model, you know? Like, yeah, and, yeah. And, and then so how, like, how does all of those things kind of play together in an active program as well? I think that's the thing that's so difficult to capture, right? Is uh, it's evolution, right? So we, we always come up with, you know, and I always tell people I should never drill a geophysical and a geophysical anomaly is reflecting a geological change. So you need to try and hypothesize what that geological change is. Are you seeing a gravity anomaly because you created uh, an alteration that's made it more dense? Is it a rock change? Is it, you know, what is it, right? And so I think sometimes, I, 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 and I go back to when I started in my career versus now, um, I think one of the big things that's changed is 
earlier on, people were really required to put down on paper what their idea was, what the target comes, right? So it's like they had to define it. Like, oh, I'm looking for St. Ives, a zone such and such dolerite, and I'm looking for a, you know, like a fault offset that's going to cause, you know, like you, you had to, to write it down. And I think I've seen this um, this change where people are really uncomfortable putting ideas down on paper, and you know because they're they're not comfortable being wrong, right? And and that's that's something I've I've gotten really good at being wrong. It's it's probably my best strength, right? And but then iterating is the next step, right? So I can be wrong, and I almost certainly will be whenever you start on a new project, right? Like considering the failure rate we have in exploration, you know, there is overwhelming evidence to say that you're going to be wrong far more than you ever will be right. Yeah, and and that that yeah, is essentially the nature of what we are doing. Yeah, a guy uh, gave a talk at SEG. He's a production geologist, and I think it was him that that said this, where he's like, "You were doing a big disservice to a lot of geologists out there by forcing them to go into exploration and always, you know, singing the praises of exploration, the high tide of geology, right? You know, like if you're a production geologist, you don't think about rocks, which is totally underselling. You can certainly do that. You can certainly be a production geologist that doesn't think about rocks." When I was a production geologist, that wasn't how I was. I was always like, oh, what's going on here? And what do I need to do there? And, and then you get to test ideas every single day. Right? So you line out around and you say, oh, we're going to turn right because there's a fold that's moving the ore this way. Oh, I was wrong. You know, it turns out it went straight or whatever. And, and so his, his point was, well, you know, we're actually maybe doing a disservice by pushing everybody towards exploration, where that's almost a mindset that, require, a mindset that requires continuous um, uh, optimum, right? And and being able to deal with this and being able to overcome adversity and say, oh, well, I was wrong so badly on this. How do I pull the pieces together? And you look at production geology, you know, that's not the case, right? You're testing ideas on a shorter time frame. You can, you can actually, you know, like see a mine evolve before your very eyes. And I'm not trying to sell exploration short because obviously I love it. The feedback loop on the production side is, is incredible, right? Like, you know, you can have an idea in the morning and by the end of the day, you know how right you were. Like, like quantifiable, yeah. like quantifiably how right or wrong you were, uh, you know, based yep. on where the ore drive went or, you know, like or what was pulled out and reconciliation tells you, you know, at the end of the week, how, how right you were that week. So maybe, you know, like yeah. that, that is actually maybe a great area for people to learn iteration because you know like or, or maybe like yeah um maybe from the point of view of payoff yeah it's small payoff because you know you're kind of incrementally gaining things but then also your iteration uh teaches you how incrementally you can add and and, and get to that and that is one of the challenges yeah, and, in exploration is to like you know you stand on the shore of, of this ocean and yeah you got to get to the other side but you got no idea how big the ocean is or how tough it's going to be or what it's going to take it's and i think that's that's a really I don't know, key thing, right, is uh, there's a total change of scale that that is requires a change of mind, right? So it's uh, like the things that you use on like a production geology scale don't work. They don't scale up, right? So like the the some of the basics, like how to do iteration and how to do, you know, um, where you're actually putting your ideas down on paper. And then, and I always go back to like, it is a science. So there should be a hypothesis, right? And we should be able to test this hypothesis. Maybe it'll be 10 years from now. But, uh, but people like really struggle to change that scale, right? Like, so it's like here I could map features and I could say, oh, okay, the fault has a little uh, deflect this. Um, but then you get out to the, the the big scale and you're like, oh, well, this is all covered by glint and there's, there's no outcrop and there's no ability to map. And I still have to come up with some idea of how the geology is, is oriented and what's going on. And so it's like, you have to like learn new skills and it's like a new way of thinking. And I think that's, it's a, it's a huge challenge. And so, you know, maybe we're we're not doing a great job of of pushing everybody to go into exploration when when uh, you know they should be like it's kind of like the graduate programs. Like I think uh, Australia was much bigger on this, and, and we're we're trying to change here. But uh, uh, where you bring uh, you know a person in and they do a role for six months, and then they change to a different group and they do that for six months, and, and you you find out what you like and what you don't like, and it's um and you learn things that apply to all all the different roles you do, right? And and I just go back to this this idea of like. If I'm going to be wrong 999 times on my expiration concepts, I have to have a pretty deep well of optimism. Right? Yeah, that's right. And, and it's like, an optimism is not a scientific characteristic, right? No. And but then you you think about, um, and I once heard the scientific method is actually there's two scientists. And I wish I could quote it better, and I'll fail to do. It. But um, 
was like, so one is the way we learned, right? You know, like, so the, you know, create a hypothesis, you know, collect data, create a hypothesis, like that. Yeah, which is the popper, the Popperian view of science, right? Like, yeah, like we got to yeah, create yeah, a hypothesis, yeah. test it, and then iterate, et cetera. Yeah. And then, and then there's almost like another one when it comes to like new discoveries where it's just like, some of these things are so far beyond our ability to hypothesize. And it's like, you, you almost have to jump to conclusions that are really hard to back up. It's right. Where it's like, okay. I saw these in geophysics and it goes back to that intuitive. But now I think this is going on and this is my target. Well, now I have to backdate my science to make that make sense. So I have to now say, okay, how do I describe this intuitively scientifically? And that's really different, right? Where it's like, oh, okay, I had a, you know, I hate to say this because I think like Michael Doggett has this great quote on like, you know, that gut feeling you have is the burrito you ate for breakfast. (laughs) (laughs) But (laughs) <laughs> that's right but i uh but, I, I but, think... but this is like this is an important point in that in that what you're kind of saying is that you know people that do work in geology and let, and let's frame it in the in the sense that we are scientists yeah are taught this kind of um are taught this established view of science that you have to come up with a hypothesis and any kind of build your your knowledge that way but we have to accept that there's a limitation and, and you did a great job in kind of explaining it in that you know, the limitation is that you live in the realm where you are looking for incremental development of your knowledge. There is no, there is no leap forward into, uh, you know, a kind of a knowledge that you just don't even know exists, which I think, you know, so that, that second view that you're describing, you know, I think that's kind of the, the creative realm. Or one of the easiest ways is the science, like the science fiction realm, right? I think that that's the, the view that, that that sits in. And I kind of describe it as that, you know, like if all, if all you looked at in your life uh, were like small animals, you know, like the size of a cat, it's like how many people would have assumed that a, an animal like an elephant or a blue whale would exist? Yeah, you know, if your whole Yeah, that's view, the stuff of legend, right? Yeah, like, you know, like <laughs> if you said like, okay, so, you know, like, uh, yeah, like you have looked at cats your whole life. It's like, okay, what do you think is the biggest animal you, you can think could exist? And they go... I don't know, like a, a, an animal that's twice the size of a cat. It's like, okay, but what if it's like 20 times the size of a cat? It's like, oh, that, that's science fiction. And that's kind of, I think, like, you know, that, that leap that you kind of need to go and go, well, actually, what if a world exists that you just don't even have an idea? And, and that, I think, is sometimes the, this kind of concept around, and I don't just don't think like, you know, we're not special in, in, in exploration or anything in that, in that sense. I, but, but there are certain realms that exist where it's a more creative endeavor to kind of figure out, well, well, like what world could actually exist or what concept could actually exist and as crazy as it sounds uh it it could still manifest in in some way and how do i actually now utilize a scientific method to try to figure out whether that world exists well exactly like it's kind of like um i, I read a uh, an interesting thing we were actually having a, a bit of a philosophical discussion at one of the sites i was at recently and um and we were talking about um you know some of the the, the basis of of geological science right you know like so it's like things as they are now are likely as they were in the past probably fairly realistic right and then you get to like okay well what about flood bas- we don't have any flood basalts now and like what about i think and i have no idea how to pronounce because i've only ever read it but like the decon traps and it's like we can't even imagine flood basalts like ripping across the continent right and um and so so it's like if I am limiting myself to what I see and observe now, yeah, it's all dependent on the content, right? So I'm going to miss that. And, uh, and so like ore deposits are exactly that, right? Where they are 100% anomalies in this world that do not belong, right? They are huge concentrations of gold beyond what the source, you know, like rock or fluids had. And, um, and every, like, or whether it's gold or any other, any other uh, deposit, right? And they're every one of them's an anomaly. And it's like, why why is this there like we don't get banded iron formation right it's like not that i know of anyways (laughs) and so if we look at you know like what could exist under our current atmosphere it's very different than you know like i remember working in australia and and seeing detrital pyrite and go like what what's what's this and they're like oh it's detrital pyrite you know and i was like but what do you what do you mean like and they're like well it was before oxygen was in the atmosphere and it like blew my mind because I'd only ever worked in young deposits that were since oxygen, right? I hadn't even considered it as a possibility that, that these rocks were forming. And I, I knew it. I'd learned it at school, right? And I just hadn't realized, right? And it's the, it's the same thing with, like, we were looking at this one comadiite flow. And, um, 
uh, or sorry, it wasn't a cat, it was one of the basalts. And so there's this, this like, we're like logging through core and there's no apparent faulting. It's all like beautifully preserved for each 7 billion year old rock, which again, blows my mind. Having worked at the, the deposit I came there from was like Jurassic. <laughs> and, uh, so, um, and, uh, and so we're looking at this and I was like, all right, so we've got, you know, um, these pillow basalts here, but now, now we've got like really nice massive flows and they're like, there's no pillows. And, and like, this looks like, you know, like a, a, a like basalt flow, like over the surface and it's filling in between pillows and all this. Right. And I was like, how does this happen? You know, like this doesn't make sense to me. And, uh, the guy I'm logging with is like, well, he's like, well, I don't honestly know. He's like, but you know, you remember 2.7 the uh, the moon was six so tides or so we're in a rift environment what if there was 100 meter tides and this is low tide and that's high tide and now we're back to low tide and it was like no <laughs> and so you go back to like all right so if that's gold deposits because essentially or any ore deposit that's like it's essentially these things that we've never seen right i mean maybe they're they're existing like places like news right um but like some of these systems like, way deeper than we could ever see and so i go I have to use it because I just don't understand, right? Like even the Archean, like the rocks behave different. And I think like one of the things that probably drives people nuts when they work with me is um, I, I'm frequently, because like when I travel to sites, um, I, I probably can't say this on air, but uh, I'll, I'll say it anyways, you can edit it out later. So like I, I once heard it described as my role is that of a seagull. So I come in, I, I fly in, I squawk, I shit all over the place, and then I fly out, right? <laughs> and, uh, so you you hey, only have so much don't, time to... Don't worry about not saying that on the show. I think we've said it plenty of times on our, sh on our okay. show already, so it's fine. <laughs> right, uh, but, I, uh, I, consider, I consider what Steve does a lot of the times as a seagull, having worked with him. So, <laughs> yeah, so uh, there's no problem there at all. Yeah, yeah. But uh, so, like, I have to fly in, and I have four days to see, right? And um, so I could spend my four days reading every detail of every report. And I, I talked earlier about that personality. But ultimately, I have to be like, well, what matters most? And and what can I understand with a short visit? And so I'm always skipping through crazy amounts of detail to say like, okay, well, how does it matter? How do we use it? How do we utilize it? And, and it's like, there's a real fine line there where if you say that too much, then people go, oh, well, they don't want us to tell. And that's not what I want. I want them to collect the detail, but I want them to digest it. Right. So it's like, tell me what mattered from that report that you read, you know, like from that 500 page thesis. What was the takeaway? Like, you know, how do we use it at our site? Because like not everybody has time to read a 500 page thesis. Right. And so so I think I probably drive people insane by always asking that. But it's again, it's not to say, oh, yeah, don't um, don't don't do this. It's to say, how do we use it? Right. And um, and so I go back to that that conversation on the oxygen and the atmosphere and all that. It's like, oh. Well, what impact does that have on ore deposit? What impact does that have on rock? And and it's like, how do we use this this incredibly now esoteric data where it's like, like I can't imagine a life, right? <laughs> and yet it existed. And yeah, so it's it's really challenging. And uh, and I think that's what makes geology fun, right? Is is uh, and it goes back to that Harold Raggett quote: is we're trying to see, you know, like we're again we're seeing the same thing as everybody else is. But we're trying to think something that no one else has thought before. So when I go into areas and talking at one of our sites, and it's like, oh, okay, so how are all the discoveries made here? Classic lines that I always ask people is I always want people to know, to understand, like, well, what were the discoveries? What were they based on? Geophysical discoveries? Again, talking about, like, that should reflect rock. Were they geochemical anomalies? What were they? And then, like, one of them is like, oh, like, almost all outcrop, which is incredibly common in so many parts of the world except for Austria. Uh, but uh, where it's, it's like, you know, oh, we, we, we had a, a prospector stumble across an outcrop. And, like, literally, you know, like, people have, like, stepped on an outcrop and then their foot scrubbed moss off of it. And then they went, oh, there's a gold-bearing vein right there. What are the odds, right? And so then it's like, okay, so if all these deposits are discovered by outcrop, where are we going to find deposits that weren't discovered? Because, you know, you could have, like, I guess, two train of thoughts. Like, you know, maybe some of the deposits are blind and they have to surface. And so maybe we're looking for alteration halos, where even if you're looking at, okay, I'll take the geochemistry around my known deposit, and I say, okay, this is what the halo looks like. That's at a certain depth. The halo is going to look different above the deposit. So we actually don't know what the halo will look like above one of our de deposits because it's outcrop. So all that stuff's eroded off, and, you know, like the, the pressure, pressure temperature changes of all are all different right and um so so i go so like short of finding a blind discovery based on something that we don't know on data that we can't collect um how how else can we be successful in this area you go well maybe look undercover like look under the areas that have 
uh, you know, lacustrine sediments or they have glacial till. You know, look look in the areas that the, the people walking on the ground discovered an outcrop. And maybe, and I, I think, and I won't name the company, but I just saw a, a company in the Yukon basically did exactly that. There's there's almost outcropping um, uh, ore, and and they they basically came up with uh, you know like like using till sampling to backtrack. It's like you know if if that till train hadn't existed, like how would you have found that deposit, right? And and um, and I think this is like really critical stuff because. If we're trying to find ore deposits, you know, we don't have 10 years to do a PhD and postdoc, you know, all this, this research, right? We have, you know, realistically, it's always, always a short term, one to two years, three years, five years. And, you know, like how, how good's your board of directors? How good's your CEO? Do they have faith in what you're doing? Do they have, you know, like, do they have constraints themselves? We're like, oh, we have to make a decision on this property in a year because we have an option to expire or whatever. So you always have to, to collect data quickly and make new interpretations of the data you have. And so I'm always trying to drive people to like, well, what do our discoveries look like? And that's essentially the really long answer to your question earlier of why I did this talk. <laughs> yeah. But I think like yeah, you know, I guess this is a yeah like um yeah like I'm like I laughed at your answer about why it's like why does discovery matter why what do discoveries look like and I think yeah like yes we've taken a while to get here but what what the what your what the discussion so far we've had kind of shows that it's not an easy thing to uh to identify yeah like it's not an easy thing to map out the process to get to a discovery is not an easy thing to map out and and I think yeah. By extension, like the the a discovery is not easy to define then either because there are so many different methods of getting there. So how do you then act like yeah, you know, if you can't identify the method and you don't exactly know the the end product of that method, then the the end product is hard to define as well because you can't define the uh, the process. And I and yeah, like in your presentation I had this great slide at the start, which uh was uh, I think like crowdsource kind of definition of what discovery is, and yeah, I forget how many you had, but yeah, there were some excellent answers in there. But but the takeaway for me was that actually there's 20 different definitions of discovery, which means that there's which means that there's no definition of discovery because it's really up to the user to kind of define how they define discovery. And that's so it's kind of funny because like sometimes you just set out with a talk and you you think you know what you're gonna see and all that, and um, and so I, I, years back, I, I did a talk and I asked on uh, LinkedIn because I, I really like it because people are pretty open about sharing. And so I was like, I should ask this question on LinkedIn. And then I asked people, you know, if it's okay to like use, I put it in the question. And uh, and I, I wanted to credit people, but I also wanted to leave it anonymous because I've heard most of those answers or not all of them because there's some that were like totally not mind blowing. I'd never heard. Um, but I'd heard a lot of those answers from other people. So it's kind of like that's a cross section of, of geology, right? And that's people with tons of experience and uh, really good explorers, like people that I like really look up to had, had answers in there. And and I loved it. It was like, none of them are the same. I don't think I had any two answers. And even like, I had like 47 comments. I only put like a, a small amount in there. But even the comments on the comments were like, no, that's not true. And this, 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 you know? And and it's like, I think that's the best part, right? Is um, what is a discovery? We can't even answer it, you know? <laughs> I know. And I think that to me, that's the takeaway is that, yeah, like for example, if you ask someone a definition and, uh, you know, you ask 10 people and you get 10 different definitions, but, you know, um, in summary, that means there's no definition because there isn't something that people can kind of coalesce to or condense to. Uh, yeah, like I'm looking at your presentation and say, yeah, uh, um, what, is, what does discovery look like? So has paid a dividend to shareholders through a downturn, adds value and optionality to your company. A discovery is something recognized, realized, or found for the first time. A new showing demonstrating great counts for the greenfield space. I mean, some of these answers are not even like at all similar to each other. You know, yeah, one's, a, yeah. one's, a, one's an economic answer, one's a geological answer, one's a... Uh, I guess an opportunity answer that you found something that other people haven't, um, and you know, and even down to I guess someone wrote discoveries are often made with hindsight, never with foresight, uh, and and so it's like okay, well, well, clearly we have no definition of discovery. Yeah, you know, like is is that what we kind of coalesce to? So this is kind of the thing, like where and, and I, I I guess I have my own definition, but it's it's a it's one that I won't even repeat on air because it's maybe I will. But it's it's not even um, applicable everywhere, right? It's like essentially, you know, for me, it's like you know, and I think someone else. Does, but it's like when you get 
potentially significant intercepts of an expected grade and thickness that you're looking for in that deposit style in that deposit setting, right? So if I'm looking for, like for example, in um, uh, Kalgoorlie, if I'm looking for an ore deposit, one gram at 10 meters, probably not what I'm looking for, right? And, but if I get like, you know, um, if I go over to Carlin, I'm going to have a very different expectation of what discovery is going to look like, right? And if I if I go to an epithermal silver de- deposit, it's going to be very different. And so I think, like to me, and I always I was um, I was debating on saying my like, ideas that that should die um, is model based exploration, and I mean not like geological model, but like control model based exploration. And yet that is entirely what my answer is dependent on. And so I was like, well, I probably can't then, <laughs> because it's. Like you have to have a concept of what you're looking for. And that's the hardest thing, right? Because if you're doing greenfields exploration, am I just drilling for half gram intercepts over 300 meters or am I drilling for 20 grams over three meters? This point that you made about like deposit style and how it varies, like to me, uh, like that is a is a great philosophical outcome is that the process of discovery requires iteration, you know, the methodology that you use to find something. But actually the definition of discovery re- requires iteration as well because yeah the uh you know 10 meters at one gram in one location is not a discovery in another location so by definition you actually have to iterate your definition of discovery based on what you find how you find where you find yeah like uh um yeah like a hundred like a hundred gram meter intersection next to a mine yeah irrespective of how big is a great discovery in the middle of nowhere no one's looking at it yeah so. exactly and and it's and that's the hard thing because like uh, you go back to you you need experience to to say that right you need to work in different commodities you need to work in different deposit styles and like you know like I um I at one point had tallied up the weird deposit styles that I've worked in and I I like I haven't met all the ones I want to work in like so there's still plenty out there that I want to see but I've got a, like a bit of variety and that's what I've seen is is and I actually talk about like you know like earlier I said the three the three um economic discoveries I've been involved with. And it's like, and this is like one of my favorite parts is like one of them, I was a coral logger. I had zero impact on that discovery. And yet <laughs> I learned funny. so much but, from it, right? Yeah, but you were like, in the movie, right? Like I mean I'm sure yeah, you played yeah. some part, even if it was, it was small. Uh, like you were still there. Yeah, it was like, you know, like Coral Logger three, you know, played by <laughs> Yeah, that's right. In the credits at the end. Yeah. That's yeah. yeah. And, but the thing that's interesting is, is so if I took what was successful there, we wouldn't have have continued drilling in in that gold silver system like that was actually uh, probably won't let me, but it was it was like a medium sulfidation epithermal totally different than a carlin style right and then the one there in australia was like the criteria used there we would have been looking for much bigger uh, continuity on our on our intercepts so instead of like a couple high grade you know like relatively narrow you know like two to five meter intercepts well, then we would have walked away from the other two discoveries if I used the criteria for this one. And vice versa, we would have said, oh, well, we're not interested in that one because it's refractory ore, and so we don't want to. So it's, it's entirely dependent on on what you're looking for. And so I always buy all these books like um, from like famous discoverers, you know, so I have like The Rock Speak by Haddon King and like Geo Pico. And I actually have no idea how to pronounce that because I never read it. Um and then, uh, you know, like even stuff like the map that changed the world, if you've ever read that book, it's like about the first geological map. And then like the conquest of Copper Mountain. And I, I've just got this whole variety in my shelf. And the thing, the right reason I buy them is like, what did they think? And every one of them is different because they were in a different environment in a different cost environment or a different geological environment. And I go, okay, so so that's about the only thing in common is that we have to look at them different, right? And so... Yeah, I, I guess, I don't know, it's kind of a cop-out answer, but it's, you know. So why this debate matters to some degree is, you know, like how many organizations we know that say that their goal is to make a discovery? And so so by definition, you know, if we've had this conversation, you go, well, if it's hard to define, then how do we know when a company's made a discovery or, or, or what discovery? So to, to your talk, right, what does discovery look like? But there's plenty of companies that say we're here to make discoveries. It's like, okay, but like, you know, so when the rubber meets the road, what does that mean? Yeah, and it's and it's really interesting because like that whole concept of minimum re- minimum research threshold is, um, it, it really kind of kills me because that's that's the hindsight, right? We won't know that until it's drilled out. 
but we won't keep drilling unless it looks promising, right? And so it's like, so I've heard so many times throughout my career, oh, that's a, not a company X size deposit, you know, like, you know, like you say, oh, we're looking for a world-class system. It's got to be 2 million ounces. How much drilling do you have to do to 2 million ounces? Is that inferred? Is that mineral inventory? Is that like guesstimated with a polygonal estimate? You know, like what, what's your, what's your, how do you even get there? And, and I go, that part's not even well-defined, right? And so if we're, hold on a second. If we're um, going through and using minimum thresholds as as a success metric, I think we're we're not going to find any more mines. And I like 100% believe that. I think that across the board, one of the big reasons that exploration um, success has fallen by the wayside is the way we're doing it, and also the way we're communicating it too, right? Like the way we communicate to boards, CEOs, investors, everybody, right? Uh, and even you're looking at like an expiration manner. Are we communicating this tarps? And um, and so I go back to like, you know, I, I remember when we were on that that deposit, we were doing the initial inferred resource. And um, and it was it was really interesting because we're we're trying to put it together, we're trying to estimate it, and it's it's not making sense, it's not making sense. And um, the geologist who drilled it out for me, her name is Aisha Ahmed. So shout out to her. That's one of the best uh, executions of a project I have ever seen in my career. So I cannot ever speak highly of, enough of her. Um, don't let that go to your ego if you ever listen to this. <laughs> yeah, that's don't worry, we'll, we'll yeah. cut that out. That's fine. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, this is back in 2000, yeah, 2011, or no, 12. And she did oriented core back then, which wasn't super you know, common. Like we started doing it, like the first project I ever, ever did it at was in 2007. And it was terrible. Like the instruments weren't very good. Um, you know, like they had to wait like a minute before you broke core and all these things, right? And so, so she set up this really well uh, set out program to to get good quality oriented core data. And that ended up being critical deciding factor because we were able to say, oh, okay, well, what if the overshoot geometry is controlled by the intersection of this and this, and this is what we think it will be, and maybe we'll do some additional drilling down plunge of that projected intersection. Oh, yeah, that's. And so then when we do the resource estimate, it takes that stuff into account, and it's like, oh no, off to the races. So you go back to like, if we hadn't done oriented, or if we'd done our seal, would that be a discovery, or would we have walked? And I, I personally think we would have walked. And that like, you know, you never know, right? But it's like, you know, it's and it's been, what, 10 years now. So it's really easy to, to say in hindsight, blah, blah, blah. But I go, well, because we did set out, we did excellent geochem sampling. We did excellent oriented core. We did a full workup of the oriented core data. Uh, and by we, yeah, you, I mean, let's be honest, you were a, a junior seagull at that time. So you did uh, very yeah, exactly, well. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I look at like, oh, we're off to the races. But then, you know, like I always joke around about like all the other functions, um, uh, you know, take our ounces. You come up with an initial number and then you have to put it through mine engineering and then they have to say, oh, can it form a pit or can you do underground? Can we do a stope optimization or not? And that's all like really dependent on on a lot of assumptions. Everything else is. So, you know, thankfully, we were like, again, collecting great geotech data so they could make some of those. Assumptions. And um and so then it's like, you know, the initial uh, uh, ounce numbers like cut in half of what we thought we would get. And then it's like, ooh, that doesn't meet the minimum ounce threshold. And it's like, oh, that is that going to get a, another phase of drilling or not? And I look at, you know, like at the time, St. Ives was really hungry. And so they uh, they needed a new deposit to come online. If familiar with any other projects like that, right? And uh, and so then they were like, oh, okay, well, maybe we'll take a look at that differently. And, and so then it went and... Um, got a flock of RC rigs descending on it to, to drill it out. And then it became a mine. So it's, you know, really easy to look in hindsight and go, what if any one of those things hadn't been done? What if we hadn't done, um, you know, waste rock characterization or what if we hadn't had done good RQD and good, well, not just RQD, but, but proper geotech. What if we hadn't done oriented? Because I can say if we hadn't done oriented core, we, we certainly wouldn't have put the resource estimate together. So then when you're drilling on a salt lake, where you can get, you know, like a meter of water all of a sudden show up because the wind changed direction. That's a very challenging environment and a very expensive event, right? Then that rig's needed elsewhere. So we have other projects. So you go back to that, like that Craystar program. Is this the big deposit where you want to put all your, your effort? Or is this a flash in the pan that's distracting you from drilling out the big deposit, right? And I think these are all, uh, like from a corporate point of view, these are all decisions that matter because at the end of the day, you are the, the purveyor of this information back up the chain to... To corporate and 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 what they want to know is like you know do you think this is a 
discovery that is going to become a a, a mine for the for the company. And yeah, you know, and I think I, I I find that this is the 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 world that we have kind of um, like you know created for us, where if we don't get this idea right, or we can't communicate either the ambiguity or the fuzziness around this idea, then then corporate people will want a hard KPI metric in that, you know, like, we don't care what you say, you know, it's got to fit into this kind of like box uh, at this time. And then, you know, like this capital allocation and all this stuff that happens. And we can't be sitting there going, you know, like, is this a discovery? Like, you know, ask uh, person number one, no. Person number two, yes. Person number two, I don't know. Third, like fourth person, uh, well, it depends what what you mean by and in the and the, yeah, and yeah. the person that's like take a vote. <laughs> yeah, like and the person that's taking a decision is going like you know like w- like what am I dealing with here? Like you know like are these guys incompetent or are they like yeah like are they yeah uh, untrained or like well, like what's the reason why we can't get to this end? Well, when you look at like geologists, I always joke around, you know, like like the only way to get a straight answer from a geologist, you know how that is? It's, you have to cut off one arm so they can't see. But on the other hand. <laughs> <laughs> so, and I think that's that's a really big problem. And I tell all the geos like, look, you're sales folks. You know, you're you're you have to sell your ideas. And we, as an industry and as a profession, revile that, right? Like people will get a look of disgust on their face when I say that, and I'm like, it's true. And I look at like again, going back to the whole movie side of that, the expiration manager there, he sold that to all of the upper management, so they all bought into it. And I go, if he hadn't have been so active in selling that, would would we have have gotten support that did? Would we have been able to do the next phase of drilling? Or someone makes a decision that we're walking away because, yeah, you know, like you can, yeah, you know, like you're not very forceful in your kind of view. So people yeah. go, well, yeah, if this guy doesn't believe in it, I don't definitely believe in it. So like, yeah, exactly. let's get out of here. And it's, so that's actually one of the, the other critical lessons I learned at that project is um, I had really wildly different personalities on co-senior geo or man. And um, we had people like that were like just natural born salesmen. So they could like, you know, sell, sell, uh, uh, yeah, all the, all the I, I can't think of anything clean to say on the on the radio. So um, <laughs> anyway, they 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 were really good at selling us, and um, and then we had other people that that were really good geos, but they really didn't feel comfortable with any sort of confrontation with talking about like and they like if you'd ask them like oh so yes or no are we gonna push this they would almost certainly say oh no 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 because no, they don't have faith that it's whatever, and so what I really realized is was like. We need a moderator, right? Because if if I have these individuals pitching their ideas to the expert, and uh, we'll just say Bob here is great at selling ideas and and you know like can sell the worst projects to 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 get funded every single time, and you know um, I don't know Ellie over there says says um, you know like oh well I'm not sure about this 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 well he's ever gonna time gonna say I want to do that because one of those as we say in Numa one of the red personalities right where it's just like the deciders the you know like I'm here to to make the the call right they're looking for someone else to make the decision for him right yeah they're, yeah, they're just yeah. there to go I'm with you yeah yeah, yeah are you in or are you out yeah like that's it yeah so then we started saying okay well and I and actually the, I think this would be the the thing that I try to tell people most is um if you're in a team like that try to come up with an equalizer, right? So maybe one person pitches all the projects, right? And so then you have to convince that person of the merit of it, and then they pitch it. And so then you know, they're your group salesman because we go back to different skills, like everybody has different abilities and skills. So if the salesperson's pitching things, it's it's equal across the board, right? Obviously, if they have a project, maybe they believe in it a little bit more than another one, but we're not working on personality level, right? And, and so you go back to like, all these things are involved in that movie, and uh, and the last thing I want to be is the guy that ignored someone because they weren't confident on a project. And uh, and then, like, you know, we sell the project and someone else discovers it because I let personality and salesmanship in the way of discovery. So and that's that's really hard. Right. Because it's, you know, you're selling ideas. Ideas are not they're not, you know, um, widgets. Right. Like I can de- describe a widget easily by looking at an idea is complex and it's. It's difficult, and um, and I think that's that's the thing with that like that discovery. The uh, this the guy who discovered it, NVK. There, he was like you know really good at like well this is what I think is going on, and this is this and this and this, 
And uh, so it's like, okay, well, that's a reasonable explanation. And um, let's look at maybe doing another phase of drilling, right? Like you, you described the geology well. And, and there's plenty of other te- people on our team that did that. Like we had like one, it was, it was like such a great experience. And, uh, mm-hmm. and then to go into the, the whole downturn after that was real pain. <laughs> so. Hey, Scott, I, I just realized we're 10 minutes away from finishing our yeah. time slot. And, and, and we have got nowhere close to the, the stuff that we want to talk about. Um, so how about we do this again? Do you, are you, yeah. Like, are you going to have time or would you be able to do oh, this yeah. again? Yeah, usually like yeah, if yeah. we do the same time frame, that, that'd work fine. But yeah, there there is so much more that uh, I think we can kind of get into that you know like we haven't even even gotten into. Yeah. Um, the challenge will be editing I, it down to something uh, comprehensive. That's not my problem. That that's Tom's problem. Uh, <laughs> so uh, yeah, delegation of authority right there. Um, uh, but Scott, we got to set up another time because yep. I, I think we got to keep going. No, I really enjoyed talking to you guys. Excellent. Excellent. Perfect. Catch you, Scott. Magnetic survey coverage continues to expand rapidly worldwide, but the ability to assimilate this data into exploration programs has not kept pace. Southern Geoscience, a global leader in integrating geophysical knowledge, will be offering their Integration of Aeromagnetic and Geology course ahead of the 2023 PDAC conference. This introductory and hands-on course aims to enlighten participants on the strengths and weaknesses of potential field methods and to illustrate how they can best be used to advance exploration programs. The course will run in person in Toronto on the 2nd and 3rd of March, 2023. For more information or to register, go to sgc.com.au. That's sgc.com.au. Or follow them on LinkedIn. Early bird rates apply until the end of January. Until next time, let's keep exploring. Thanks to Scott for coming on our show and Sean for putting it together and to you all for listening. Exploration Radio is brought to you by the Australian Institute of Geoscientists, One to One Group and the Assay. Exploration Radio is also an official media partner of the 2023 PDAC conference. Until next time, let's keep exploring.